The preaching of God's Word then is in Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 15, 1 through 7. Read then, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. The Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. He spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? When he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying, Unto them rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. As we come to consider this passage, it's right for us, instinctively even, so to look upon the activity of the Pharisees and scribes and their murmuring and to say there's a problem with that. We know that. However, we ought to remember something more fundamental. God is holy. God's holiness is beyond our conception. Your highest thought of God's holiness has been infinitely beneath what His holiness is. When you have trembled in His presence, you have not even begun to comprehend His holiness. When you have marveled in His glory, you've still not come close to the full conception of how perfectly pure He is. Related to that, man as fallen in his estate, in his estate of sin is more vile than you or I have ever considered. There is to be more revolting in our souls over sin than over the most rotted and wasted carcass that captures our uh, revulsion in this life. Man in sin is vile. You, in your sin, are vile. Sinners, in their sin, are vile. And so when the publicans are brought to Christ, those who are here styled sinners, and they receive the Pharisees and scribes murmuring, there's something that we ought to acknowledge is here represented. Now, there's a gross misordering of these things, but the instinct of the Pharisees and the scribes is correct. Sinners are revolting. Wickedness is abhorrent. And there ought to be nothing other than that thought in our souls. However, they were without a key truth in addition to these two things. The Savior has come to save sinners. They had missed and misunderstood the mission of the Messiah. They had misjudged the purpose of the Savior. The Savior did not come to those who were ceremonially righteous and free from scandalous sin to say unto them, You're my people. He had come, as He here expresses in a variety of ways, 
to pursue after sinners and to bring them unto repentance. Now, from the outset, we ought to notice Christ is not going to have casual interactions with sinners. He's not going out and hanging at pubs. He's not going out to concerts of godless music and just sitting for entertainment purposes in the presence of sinners. Nor is he going just to sympathize and say, you know what, your life is tough, and yeah, this is difficult, and don't worry too much about righteousness. Rather, we see so clearly, so plainly, the mission of Christ toward sinners. When he says in this parable before us, or rather, as it's here called a parable, this uh, implication, when he speaks of the one who has lost a sheep, and he goes pursuing after it which is lost, and having found it, what does he do? He doesn't say, look, you're lost, stay in your lostness, and I'll stay with you in your lostness, and I'll become like you in lostness. But rather, notice, he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and he comes home. In our culture, and by that we mean this, in the church culture that plagues our day, there has been a compromise that reasons from Christ pursuing sinners to the conclusion that we can just go and have fellowship with sinners. That is an abominable corruption of this truth. That's not what Christ is doing. But rather notice, He's gone and pursued them, and they now are drawing near to Him, to hear Him. And so He's drawing them out of their sin. Yes, He's pursued them in their sin, not participating, not condoning, not fellowshipping with them in it, but rather calling them to repent. Think of the message that Christ comes proclaiming. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is come. He doesn't set up shop at the brothels and at the drunken scenes of his day and say, you know what, you're just misunderstood people and you know the church is just misguided in saying this is sinful. No, he's the one leading the charge. You're in sin. You're condemned. You need to repent. I'm coming with terms of peace, calling you unto salvation. Brethren, whereas our own culture has erred much in this, There is a like error that is prominent in the text before us that would, as it were, condemn those and even condemn Christ for calling sinners to Himself unto repentance. This is, you'll see, the misunderstanding of the Pharisees. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. A couple things further about the text. Notice it says the publicans and sinners. The word publicans has to do with tax collectors. Now you and I think we understand immediately how it would be that the Pharisees would despise this. But you have to remember there's something far deeper than just, as it were, working for the IRS in our day. Rather, the publicans, the tax collectors, were typically Jewish compromisers who had joined with the establishment of the Roman government 
And in addition to joining themselves in service to the Gentiles who were contrary to God, they often, using that authority, did add on to the taxes lawfully proscribed and prescribed and did ask for more money to enrich themselves. This is, of course, what we see of Zacchaeus, who was a publican. And as he says, if I've taken anything unlawfully, I restore it fourfold. And so it's not just, well, they're taxes, they're, they're, they're taxmen, but rather these were clear defilers of God's covenant and were instruments in the hands of a wicked government for further wickedness among God's people. And the word sinners is indeed general. It would include all manner of scandalous things. It's not just saying, as it were, well, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, and so all sorts of people are there. It's a word that is used throughout the Gospels to speak of those who are notorious sinners. So you remember, this woman who was a prostitute comes, and she falls at Christ's feet, and the man who's there, who's hosting Christ, says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is. She's a scandalous, she's a notorious sinner. That's the point. So it's not just, well, this person's a sinner, that person's a sinner, and so on, but this adulterer, this murderer, this idolater, and Sabbath breaker, and dishonoring a father and mother in public ways, they're gathered to hear Christ. So they're now grumbling and saying, look, he's with those whom we know are notorious, wicked, obstinate sinners. But they had misjudged something. Notice, the text says, Then drew near unto him, that is, unto Christ, all the publicans and sinners, for to hear him. He was proclaiming the truth of God's word to them. They had misunderstood something. They were right in identifying them as those publicans and sinners, but they had misread the situation. It was not as in the commission and the activity of their sins that they were coming now presenting themselves to Christ. But they were coming as those who had repented of their sins. And they were now hanging upon the word and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Christ's point when he points out this parable, as we've already mentioned. And he says, look, verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. And by doing so, he's saying, these who are gathered with me are those, yes, who were obstinate, notorious, public sinners, but now they stand as those who have repented. And notice the contrast. The Pharisees and the scribes murmured. They're grumbling. You know what that is. When something happens and you start to grumble and complain, notice the contrast. It says in verse 7 that there shall be joy in heaven. The grumbling of the Pharisees over the repentance of sinners is contrasted with the rejoicing in heaven over the repentance of of sinners. Well, all of this helps us to see how it is that Christ seeks sinners to save them. He comes to 
save sinners. He comes to call them unto repentance. And this, not as some isolated work of His, but is, as it were, the great spectacle of heaven. We hear, as Peter writes, that the angels long to look into the mystery of the Gospel. They wonder at it because of the glorious work of their beloved God. Well, as we think of Christ, who is the Savior of sinners, consider then three things. Firstly, that Christ pursues sinners. Secondly, that Christ receives sinners. And thirdly, that Christ saves sinners. He pursues, He receives, and He saves sinners. Now, as we take up firstly Christ pursuing sinners, it's important for us to make this clear in our minds. It's true, of course, that Christ pursues the elect. But it's wrong for us to think that He's pursuing the elect as those who are saved. There are errors, even in so-called reform circles, which speak of the eternal state of justification. It's not true. Believers in Christ are brought into the state of justification upon the gracious gift and exercise of faith. Though they are elect unto salvation before that sovereign moment, they are acknowledged to be and treated as sinners before faith. And so you don't find this kind of statement that, well, we are those who are ever considered justified, but rather by faith are we justified. Before faith is exercised, we are rightly understood to be sinners. And so God's law comes to us and doesn't fictitiously say to us, well, you're a sinner, sort of, but really you're justified. And really just you have to come to terms with and come to realize your state of justification. It's not that at all. The Word goes forth to the elect and says, you're a sinner in need of repentance. You're a sinner in need of faith. Now we marvel and glory in this truth that God has already chosen them unto salvation. But remember, as the Scriptures are clear, He chooses them unto salvation by grace through faith. Not until faith comes. Not until faith is given. And thus, not until faith is exercised are they declared righteous. They are chosen in Him from before the foundation of the world. They are elect in Him before all of these things. But before they are by faith trusting in Christ, they are rightly understood to be sinners. Now what does this word sinner mean? As doubtlessly we've heard on various occasions, whether it's stayed in our mind or not, the word sin has to do with missing the mark, going astray. And what a clear picture that is regularly before us. And so in Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. And how interesting that Christ uses the image of a sheep going astray in the parable He gives. Sin is likened unto an arrow that not only misses the mark, but purposefully is missing the mark. There's the target. I hate the target. I'm going to shoot at something else. I despise the standard that God has given, and so I'm purposely going to shoot at something else. That's sin. And brethren, 
That's what sinners are. Sinners are those who aren't accidentally missing the mark. It's not like you and I, if we go target shooting in whatever way, a BB gun, a rifle, a bow and arrow, and we're looking and we don't have the mechanics down rightly yet, and we shoot and it misses the mark, and oh, someone looks at it and says, well, you need to breathe correctly, or you need to hold it correctly, or you need your sights uh, recited. It's not that at all. Sinners are those who despise the mark that is set before them. They look at the mark and they say, I despise it. I hate it. I'm going to shoot somewhere else. If you've ever been around various creatures, whether they're sheep or horses or other mules that are stubborn, and you're trying to bring them along, and they have their mind set on something else, that's the picture of a sinner. The sinner is stubbornly refusing, and so God often reproves His people in their unbelief as those who are stiff-necked, who will not turn the ear to hear Him. They have their heart fixed upon something else, contrary to what God calls them to. This is what a sinner is. They've gone astray, but they've gone astray willfully. Parents see this in their children. It's shameful that it elicits laughter from us when we see the signs of sin. Far better would it be that with Augustine, we would weep over the vile sins of childhood when he remembers stealing from the orchard and condemns himself as a wicked and vile sinner. So it should be with us when we see our children refusing to do what is right. Don't touch that. Don't do this. And immediately, they looking you in the eye, go to pursue that. That's not cute. That is rebellion in their heart. That is vile wickedness, which, if is not forgiven, if they repent not, will be the certainty of their damnation. What parent is there in this world who can conceive of laughing with some humor over their children being thrust into the flames of hell? There's none. We wonder, and it's a struggle for us, isn't it, to wonder at this, that on that day, we being so perfected in faith and hope and holiness, will rejoice in God's justice. But we have to admit That's difficult for us to conceive of. And none of us, nor does the Bible teach, that we'll just sit there laughing like it's something humorous. When we look at our children and their sin, and it elicits from us a smile, there's something wrong. There's something wicked at work there. They're showing themselves to be those who need the gift of repentance. They're showing themselves to need the the work of, of grace unto salvation. And surely, brethren, if we look back upon our sins with some devilish delight, it's testifying to us that something's wrong. Because sinners are those who have purposefully turned from God and despise Him. The light has come, but men would not come to the light. Why? Because their works were evil because men love darkness rather than light. We have need to take deep thought upon this truth of sin. In our circles, we tend to think of ourselves as doctrinally astute, as orthodox, as perhaps advanced above certain others. 
If you want to prove that that's the case, when was the last time you wept over your sins? When was the last time you looked at your sins and said, this is abhorrent, this is revolting, this is wicked? When is the last time, as the psalmist says on several occasions, that rivers of waters stream from your eyes because the wicked trample God's law in the streets? This is the reality of what sinners are. They are vile in the sight of holiness. Now, notice, Christ is said to pursue them. And He does so through this parable. A sheep has gone astray. You have a hundred sheep. One is lost. What does the shepherd do? He leaves the ninety and nine in the wilderness to go after that which is lost. And so it is, though they are willfully pursuing wickedness, they are rightly called in the Scriptures, lost. Now where is it that Christ pursues them? This is something instructive for us. He doesn't just sit in the synagogue and proclaim the truth. He goes and seeks them. Do you remember when He's passing by? It's rather interesting that it's become so familiar to us. Zacchaeus is said to be up in a tree because he was small in stature. He couldn't see over the crowd. And it's not as if Christ is just going by and Zacchaeus then follows him into the synagogue. Do you remember what Christ does? He actually goes to Zacchaeus. He stands under the tree. It would have been a sight to see this. The crowd pressing in upon him. And he's making a line to the tree. Steps, steps there, stands there, and he looks up. Perhaps no one else saw Zacchaeus in the tree at that point, but Christ had. He goes to Zacchaeus and he says, Come down, for today I must go to your house, for salvation has come to you. Think of that. Christ pursued Zacchaeus. He went after Zacchaeus. And this is the way He pursues us. He goes after us. Where we have gone astray, He comes to us. Where a sinner has gone astray, He goes to him. Now, this is important to understand in a number of ways. One is to understand this it's not that he's going to their scene of sin carelessly, it's not that he's going to their scene of sin, as it were, with some air of comfort in that. He's going with an, a single purpose I'm going to pursue this one and bring him back. Children often will get themselves in relative sorts of danger. And mothers particularly are the ones whose voice you'll hear octaves above others, volume cranked up, yelling at their children who are in some relative place of danger. The mother doesn't say, hey, it's okay, you're over there. If ever you want to come, you know, come back. Hey, you're too close to the road. You can keep playing over by the road. In fact, I'll come over and set up playing with you by the road. They're shouting to their children because of the danger. We know that. We've experienced that. When Christ is pursuing a sinner, He doesn't just set up camp and say, hey, you know, let's shoot the breeze and let's talk a little bit and tell me what's really motivating you in this way and that way. And, you know, it's okay. I'll come back tomorrow and you can carry on in your sin and we'll be okay with this. Oh, you're going there? I'll go there with you. And if you want to consider it, you know, consider it this time and so on. 
Christ has a single mission. And the mission is to reclaim sinners from their sin. To call them back from their sin. Not to participate in their sin. Not to compromise His own integrity. And so ministers are actually warned that in going forth to restore some sinners, they are to take heed, despising even the clothing that is worn, lest they become defiled themselves. And so our culture, which has sort of set up this idea of, oh, we have to go pursue sinners, so we have to go where they are and sort of become like they are and so on, misapplying what Paul says, unto all men I became as all men and so on, misunderstanding what Christ did, He pursued them with the purpose and the call. They didn't misunderstand Him. They weren't just thinking, oh, this is a great friend. This is a great guy. This is a great fellow in my club and group and circle of friends. His voice was single. Repent. Why will you die? The scene in which you find yourself is a scene of rebellion against God. You have need to repent. There is a place for what is seemingly so popular in our culture today, that word winsomeness. And so we ought to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. We ought to be minding our speech, our tones, and so on. But brethren, if our minding of those things overtakes the clear message calling sinners to repent, it's not winsome. It's not helpful, nor is it loving. If in our attempt to remove the offenses of other things, we end up removing the offense of the cross, whatever else we're doing is not Christian outreach. It's not Christian evangelism. There should be no misunderstanding. The sinner to whom we minister is to know without question our message is that they need to repent and turn to Christ. None of the sinners around Christ misunderstood that. They come to Him. Why? Oh, you know what? This guy's good at horseshoes. I want to start up a horseshoe club, and he's pretty good. We're going to do this. They're good at washers. They're good at barbecue. They're good at liking beer and this and that and the other. It's none of that. They came, why? To hear Him. They had seen their need for Him. They had seen His call to them. And now they hang upon His Word. How did that begin? By Christ pursuing them. How does He do it? By His presence, yes. And by His Word. He remained faithful to His Father. He did not compromise His integrity. There are times when our conscience speaks to us and as it were says to us, be careful, you're willing to enter into sin in order to justify your pretended approach to call a sinner out of his. Think of that for a moment. How it is we like to think, well, I'll go and do this. Yep, it's probably shady. It's probably covered up a little bit. It's probably missing all the marks of integrity. But at least my purpose is to call them unto Christ. Christ never did as much. Though He went where the sinners were, it was most clear what His purpose there was. 
it was to call them as they were in rebellion unto peace by the blood that he would shed and by the grace of repentance. Secondly, notice Christ receives sinners. This is important for us to realize. It's a question and a stumbling block when once a sinner is convinced of their sin. You can see that even in the parable that Christ gives that follows of this other son who's representative of the Gentiles in a large way, who goes and wastes his inheritance, and he's there as the older son, representative of the Pharisees and others, says he's wasted your money with harlots. You know that for a moment. The picture is scandalous to the Jew on two fronts. He's feeding swine, and he's sleeping with swine. He's in an unclean place, and his whole character is compromised. This is one who then comes to himself, as the Scriptures say. He begins to understand, what have I done? I have turned from a life of blessing unto a life of corruption and death. And so then notice, as he's struggling, he's saying, this is what I'll do. I'll go to my Father and I say, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no more worthy to be considered your son. Make me a hired servant. You see what he's doing is he's wrestling with the warrant to turn back to his Father. And this is what sinners, when they're convicted, do. They start to wonder at this. They say, look at all the things I've done. Therefore, I need to build it back up again so that God would at least give me some blessings. But what does the Father do in the parable? He says, this is utterly ludicrous. You're my son. Kill the fatted calf. Give my son the best robe. And let's rejoice this day. Why? Because my son, which was dead, is now alive. What's being shown to us is the wonder of free reception to the penitent sinner. That there's no amount of conviction that we finally work up. There's no amount of... uh, starting to argue with God and saying, this is what I'll do and this is how I'll live. And then he finally says, yes. He says, return to me. Why will you die? Return to me. How is it that Christ receives sinners? Well, first, which sinners is it that Christ receives? We don't mean, of course, merely the difference between elect and reprobate. Obviously, the Scriptures are clear Only those who are elect will come. But the question is, how do we see those who are elect coming? They come to Christ for Christ. They come relinquishing their life of sin and embracing the Savior. They come renouncing their rebellion and claiming salvation in Christ. So the sinners who come, yes, are those chosen by God before the foundation of the earth. But in the experience of their lives, they come casting behind them their sin and embracing the Savior Jesus Christ. Yes, they come as those who are still mottled and filthy and so on because they need cleansing from the Savior. But they don't come to continue in those filthy rags. They come to Christ and they say, cleanse me of all of this filth. Forgive me of all of this filth. Change me of all of this filth. This is helpful for us. There's a sign on this street 
on Lindbergh Boulevard that supposedly ministers to wicked sinners and with the pride flag says, you are God's beloved. That is an abominable misrepresentation of the truth of what Christ is doing. Christ is not coming to sinners saying, stay in your sins and have me. He's saying, you're in death. You need life. Come to me and I'll give you life. Forsake your sins. Turn from your sins. Cast them back and have me. Think of it. Many today would have it thought that Christ finds the one who's lost and sets up camp in the estate of that one being lost. Come. You know, it doesn't matter. Just come and stay how you are. There's no change really needed. Just come. Christ isn't doing that. Think of it. He finds the sheep. What does He do? He puts it on His shoulders and brings it home. That's the picture of Christ receiving sinners. He finds the sheep, puts it on His back, He brings it home. The sinner is one who's leaving the state of sin and coming into the abiding presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only ones who do so are those whom God effectually works and does so making them willing to come. Before we pass on, this is worthy to note. There are those who will say, I have repented. There are those who will say, I did repent. And all they mean by that is they've had tears shed, they've said certain words, but you look at their lives and you can say, where is the repentance? Yes, you've said this, your tears have been shed, but you're in the place of lostness still. That is to warrant nothing from the church that says, oh, it's okay and that's great. It is to warrant from the church still, you're estranged from God. No one was to go up to Judas when his tears were streaming down his face and to say, Judas, I see you're upset about this. I see you're ashamed by that. That's great news. You must have repented. The Scriptures don't ascribe any of that to Judas. They continue to call him, what? The son of perdition. Why? Because though he felt remorse, though he came face to face with his sin, there was no repentance there was sadness, there was grief, there was shame, and there was self-murder. But there was not a step of repentance. There was none of it. The one who repents is one who turns from their sin and comes unto Christ. You can see it. They're now drawing near unto Christ to hear Him. They want to know His will. They want to know His will. They want to know His promises, His commandments, His teaching. They want Christ to overwhelm their lives. A thirsty man doesn't look at a whole fountain open to him and say, well, you know, I just want a little spray of that over my lips. He plunges his face into the pool and starts to drink in. The same is true of a sinner that is receiving Christ and is received by Christ. They don't just say, yeah, yeah, I've prayed this prayer, I've done this, and I sort of go to church sometimes. They go earnestly to hear, to take in Christ. Why? Because Christ is become their life. 
They knew the life of sin. They knew the shame of sin. Now they know the life of Christ. The blessing of Christ. And notice this. How is it that Christ receives them? Well, He tells us in the parable. He receives them gladly. Likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. When we see true repentance, our ears ought to perk up to listen to the resounding praise of the angels of God in heaven. But more than that, our ears ought to perk up to hear the resounding rejoicing of God. God rejoices. Not as if He rejoices out of surprise. Not as if He's saying, oh wow, look what they did. But He is nonetheless rejoicing that now this One whom He's chosen is brought unto life in His Son, Jesus Christ. If that's the case of heaven, what about those who by faith have entered heaven and live in heaven, by heaven, though their feet are upon the earth, but that we likewise should rejoice in the same. Finally then, Christ saves sinners. Lest we mistake all that's been said, let's be clear. In receiving sinners, He does several things. He pardons them. We see this elsewhere throughout the Scriptures that Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We have these glorious passages which speak peace. Oh God, my shame, my shame, my sin, my sin. We know what it is perhaps to stand as that one of whom Christ spoke, who could not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but did have his eyes cast down and smote his chest, saying, Be merciful, be propitious, be pardoning, to me, the sinner. And what is it but that Christ says that man went to his house justified. He was pardoned. He was declared righteous. When one turns from their sin and takes Christ, Christ not only receives them, but in receiving them, He saves them. To do so, there is the need for His pardoning of them. We don't just come to Christ and all of a sudden things are just, as it were, because of that okay. We come to Christ and because of His work on behalf of sinners, we're forgiven. This is a great work. But brethren, what is emphasized by this whole chapter is that He not only pardons them, but He transforms them. Repentance is a gift. We see that when it is that the Gentiles are uh, being brought into the church in the book of Acts, then we see uh, the, the church, the Christians, who were formerly Jews and so on, saying, well, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. Think of that language. God has granted. He's given it as a gift. We earnestly labor and pray and so on that God perchance may grant repentance unto men. Notice this. In saving sinners... He always, always gives to those He saves repentance. There's no such thing as an impenitent believer. There's no such thing as an unrepentant saved person. Everyone who is saved by Christ is given the gift of repentance. 
And so Paul can say, you know, likewise were many of you, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of mankind, liars, covetous, and so on. But that's what you were. That was your former identity. That's what you were in your rebellion and sin. But remember this, Christians, Christ sought you out. He pursued after you. He's brought you upon His shoulders to His home. And now He's transformed you. He's cleansed you. He's renewed you so that what you once were, you no longer are. What you once loved, you no longer love. How you once spoke, you no longer speak. What you once did, you no longer do. Why? Because Christ who's pursued you has transformed you. He's given you life. He's given you repentance. Brethren, it goes beyond our chapter. But it's worthy to note that in saving sinners and forgiving them and in restoring them, transforming them, He ultimately glorifies them. He ultimately brings them unto heaven itself and gives the riches of everlasting joy to them forever. The one who had wickedly gone astray and who if left by God's sovereign decree in their sin, has been instead brought back and restored and saved, now to that one, for everlasting time and eternity, are given the rich store of glory forever. When we say Christ saves sinners, let's be clear in what we mean. We don't mean, though this would be a wonder if this is all that it included, But we don't mean, because the Bible doesn't mean, that Christ merely forgives sinners. He does that. And praise God that He does that. But that's not the fullness of salvation. In saving a sinner, He purifies sinners. He changes sinners. He transforms sinners. So that though they were once vile and repulsive, now they become as the queen who is by His right hand, dressed in all the garments of beauty, prepared and adorned as a bride waiting for the bridegroom, gloriously and in splendor provided because Christ has beautified her. It's an amazing testimony in Hosea how Israel is likened unto the woman who has gone and played the harlot and yet calls her again unto Himself to restore and beautify and make lovely. And this is what Christ does for His beloved people chosen before the foundation of the world as He pursues them in their sin. He draws them, yes, to forgive because they must be forgiven if ever they should be received unto heaven but also purified. Well, brethren, as we close, here then before us is, as mentioned and so briefly, a reproof to the compromise of our own day which turns evangelism into nothing more than a compromising of the purity of the church. Christ never compromised Himself. He pursued sinners And he pursued them explicitly, plainly, and consistently unto their repentance. 
though there was the misrepresentation by the Pharisees and scribes, the Scriptures are abundantly clear. Yes, He's called the friend of sinners, but He's called the friend of sinners because He drew them out of their sin unto life. And so it is for us to remember that we are called as Christ's agents in this world to do the same. We don't sort of justify our compromised witness. Oh, you listen to this music, I'll listen to that music. You watch those things, I'll watch those things. And this is all an attempt just to be like others. We go to them pleading for them to turn unto Christ. There should never be a moment in the impenitent sinner's mind where they misunderstand your purpose for being with them. They should know why you're there. Are you permitted to go to a pub? Sure, if your purpose is clear and everyone there knows it. Are you permitted to go to someone's house that's a notorious sinner? Of course, if they're understanding your purpose. And the purpose is to call them unto Christ. It also comes to reprove those who out of their pretended delight of holiness engage in no evangelism. And so they think to themselves, well, we're supposed to be holy, therefore I'm not going to go and defile myself by sitting with people who are sinners. I'm not going to go and compromise my name. No. Christ was willing to be misunderstood by the false pietists of His day in order to fulfill His mission in calling sinners unto Christ. And we must be willing to be misunderstood today, not rightly, but wrongly misunderstood, in that when we go, we go with this as our target, to call sinners to repentance. There's a testimony of our brethren in Scotland, even this day. They have, as we have, the shameful display of wickedness in festivals and marches and so on. And some of our own ministers will go and receive some of the most vile responses as they plead, passing out literature, passing out tracts, saying, why will you die? Why will you die? Why will you die? Repent and believe the Gospel. Insults hurled. All manner of wickedness performed in front of their eyes. Doubtlessly, someone could look at them and say, why are ministers going to those places? But they're blinding their eyes to what the ministers are doing. They're pleading with these sinners to turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not going down there because the food's good and the music's pleasing. They're going down there with one focus, to plead with these sinners to come unto Christ. And brethren, our own capacity, doubtlessly we need to give more attention to these things. Surely there's also instruction to one who comes to realize they are a sinner. And when that happens, it's as if Satan turns his approach. He's most adept. He's adaptable in all of his ways. He's going and saying, carry on. Go on in your sin. Go on in your sin. This isn't bad. This isn't bad. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Christ arrests the conscience. And what does Satan do? Now he jumps on from the other side and says, you're so wicked. Never will you have hope that Christ would receive you unto himself. So Satan is this master of changing his tactics on the spur of a moment. 
But when it is, if it is, we become convinced that we stand as a sinner, we must then have before us this clear conception of the Savior of sinners. He receives wicked men. Not who say, I want to bring my wickedness and carry it on, but rather who come saying, oh, save me. I can't do it myself. I can't cleanse myself. I can't repent myself. But I come to you who has shown yourself one who receives such as I am. And I say, save me. This is the instruction for one who has come to see their sin. Christ receives sinners and saves them. There ought to be zero hesitation when Christ is understood in the mind, the conscience, the soul of a sinner in his sin. Because Christ has come most plainly, most clearly, and redundantly testifying of this truth. Come unto Me. I will give you rest. Look unto Me and be ye saved. I will receive you with rejoicing as you come to Me for salvation. Believer, in one way or another, whether even converted from infancy or as it were this morning, if a believer, remember, you are made such because Christ pursued you. Christ didn't leave you wallowing in your filth. Nor did He just pursue you as it were with the preaching of His Word. But by that Word, He reached through into your life, gave you spiritual life, brought you to faith and repentance. In other words, as the parable says, He found you in your lost estate. He put you upon His shoulders. And He's brought you home. You have a Savior who has sought you out, who has saved you to the uttermost, and will bring you not only home to His house of praise here, but will bring you home as He's preparing a place for you. And for this, you have cause to give thanks. Would you stand with me then for prayer?